Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Thank you, praise team, for the amazing worship this morning. We've been blessed. Amen. I'd like to welcome our guests again uh, who are here with us today uh, from all over. There's a couple in particular I want to welcome uh, from Port Charlotte, our old stomping grounds. Uh, Shawnee and her mom, Dolores, thank you for being here with us. Let's give them a warm spring notice welcome. You see them out in the lobby. She's sitting right here with Miriam. Yeah, right now. <laughs> and all of our guests were here with us. By the way, I'm going to say this. If you don't have a church home and you're looking for one, we'd love to have you. I won't take you from Port Charlotte, but anyone else visiting us today, we'd love to have you be part of our church family here. There's cards uh, at the Welcome Center if you'd like to look more into becoming part of this church family. But we love you and thank you for being here with us today. We hope you had a blessed week. I know mine's been blessed. It's been busy, but it's been good. And we thank God for the blessings that we have here today, just to worship together, to spend time together as the family of God. You know, as we were singing today, I was reminded about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of surrender. That last song struck a chord with my heart, reminded me at the core of who we truly are as Christians is servants of Jesus. As a matter of fact, as we read earlier, I want us to turn there once again to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, just to read that again together, because I believe this is the paramount verse, passage that talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We've been talking about renewing relationships in this series, and last week we talked about renewing our relationship with God in respect to how we view the Father and how the Father views us, our Heavenly Father. To have the mind of Christ, we must also understand the heart of the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Last week we read the second half of this passage, but I wanted to start by reading the first part as well. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy. In other words, he says, if you want to make me happy and fill my heart with joy, here's what I am looking for. Nothing filled the heart of Paul with joy more than this, he says. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And by the way, the church wasn't always, even in the very beginning, all of one accord and of one mind. They had struggles, they had issues. They were Greeks and Jews who were coming together as a church trying to understand what it meant to be a church from two full, totally different directions, two different cultures. And God brings them together into one church and they were working through issues, working through circumstances they didn't understand were seeking God's wisdom. The Bible, as I've said before, is a book about real people with real issues who are learning to be real with God. And the church of the New Testament was no different. They had issues. Can you imagine some of their general conference sessions there in the very beginning? The Jerusalem councils. The Bible says they actually were arguing about stuff. There was heavy discussion. It says they had words. They didn't always agree. And so Paul is pleading. He says, if you want to make me happy, but also more than that, the Lord, if you want to please him, be of one accord. Something that reminded me of being of one accord was when my wife and I, uh, actually my in-laws came to visit us in Michigan, we took them to the area close to the UP, which was uh, Mackinac Island. Has anyone here been to Mackinac Island up there? Beautiful, beautiful place. As a matter of fact, you can thank Mackinac Island for Kilwins, because that's the OG location of Kilwins fudge and ice cream. So if you see one of those, it all started in Mackinac Island. It's a beautiful island, no cars allowed, very historic. 
And the thing when you go to Mackinac is you have to do a tandem bike ride around the whole island because there's no cars, by the way, like I said. But it's just something you have to do at least once when you're there on the island. And so Miriam and I were there with my in-laws, and we said, well, we've never done a tandem bike. We're going to do it. So we rent a bike. We get on it. And it was weird at first because, you know, you used to being independent on a bike, but now you have two people. You have to kind of pedal and sink, lean and sink. It was all these things we were thinking about trying to learn on the go as we're going around this pretty well-populated path around the island. Well, for some reason, about halfway around, I got distracted. And I'm not sure it was a bug that got in my face. I don't know. You know, guys, we get distracted about dumb stuff. Maybe I was looking at the water. I don't know. Anyway, I got distracted, and I lost sight, and I lost focus of what we were doing, and I lost balance. And here, Miriam goes, Brian, what are you doing? Look out. And for some reason, I, I turned around, I caught what was in front of me, and there was an elderly man walking right in front of the bike. And so I just swerved. I put my foot down. The pedal caught my leg and hurt it really bad. And I, I got off, and we almost fell over. I just missed the guy by that much. It was close. When Paul says to be of one accord, he's not talking about to be autonomous together, but he's talking that we need to be in sync with the mission of God. Just like on that tandem bike, we need to be heading the same direction, in the same motion, leaning together, learning together, working together for a common goal. That's the church of Jesus. And so he says, be of one accord. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But listen to what he says. He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The way of Jesus, the way of his church, the way of discipleship is to look at others better and as of more than ourselves. To put others first. He says, let each of you look not out for his own interests, but also for the interests of who? Of others. And then we go into what Lewis had said earlier. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, lowers himself, Jesus descends to this planet. The God of the universe takes on human flesh, but not just human flesh. He didn't come as a stately king. What's the Bible say? It said, being in the form of God, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, not a great man by human standards, taking on the form of a servant. That word servant in Greek, we've, we've really lightened the meaning of that. We've kind of we watered it down because there's a lot of words in Greek you could use for servant. This was not one of them. This word doulos simply means slave. Not one that got hired, not one that was voluntary. It means slave. Jesus comes down, and, and notice what it's saying, takes on the form of a slave. And you're saying, how can that be? Well, Remember, Jesus said, I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus relegates his will to the will of the Father. And he's obedient. The Bible says how? He says he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbles himself, becomes obedient, gives his will to the Father and says, not my will, but thy will be done. Takes on the form of a slave and serves other people. It's interesting that the Bible says that we are also doulases. And we always think we're Jesus' servants, but the Bible uses that word slave. And that's why Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, who could have said James, the brother of Jesus, but instead he says James, the doulos, the slave of Jesus. It's heavy. It's heavy words, especially in our Western culture and our history. And it was heavy even in the days of Greek society. It was no less 
demeaning to think about that. But every single person in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, consider themselves slaves of Jesus. Why? Because to be a follower of Jesus means that we see him as our master and our Lord. That means we fully submit to him willfully, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Having the same mind of Jesus means to have the mind of a servant, the mind of surrender, of servitude, not just to God, but also as a result to others. As we move forward today, talking about a specific situation that exemplifies what this means in the body of Christ, in the writings of Paul, in the New Testament, a real issue that we can use as an example for us today. I'd like this to bow our heads for a word of prayer before we go forward. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we've read some heavy words already. Words that are difficult. Words that go against every grain of our humanity, of our flesh. To surrender? To give up our will, our rights, our desires for you? But not just for you, Lord, but, but for other people. Lord, we know this is difficult. Not just difficult, it's impossible. But we thank you that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. It's about his mind being placed in us through surrender to him. And so, Father, today as we explore this passage, we pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance. We pray that we would become more like Jesus as a result today. We thank you in his name. Amen. So what was happening in the New Testament church as Paul was writing to the Romans and Corinthians, Remember, they, were, they weren't all seeing eye to eye on certain things. This situation was no different. So in Romans chapter 14, it, it parallels the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can turn there and look, if you would, with me. Romans chapter 14, there was a, a conflict about those who were coming out of idol worship in the Greek culture. There was a dilemma that those who came out of this idol worship we're questioning what it meant to become a Christian in regards to eating. Because what would happen in the Greek culture is, is that many times most of the meat in the market that you'd buy for food was before it was sold in the market offered to idols. It was used in, in pagan idol worship. And so the question was, well, is it okay for a Christian to eat food that was offered to an idol if it was sold in the meat market or in the, in the store? Now, obviously, they didn't have Worthington. That would have solved the issue, right? Or Loma Linda. And, man, it was amazing. I came here to Orlando. You know there's a lot of uh, Adventists when they're selling Loma Linda or Worthington in in Walmart. Yeah, that's that's something different, not used to. But they were having a dilemma, a moral dilemma. How are they supposed to approach this question? I praise God that God leads us through the Holy Spirit. He leads His church every step of the way. Just like today, we have questions as a church. We don't have it all together. We're still trying to figure certain things out, and we probably always will. But the Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he guides us. And so Paul is advising the church on how we are to approach this idea. How are they supposed to figure this out when it comes to food offered to idols? That's why in Romans 14 it says that some people believe they shouldn't eat vegetables because it wasn't about vegetarianism, by the way. As much as we might like to think, it was more about the meat offered to idols in the market. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me, we'll see that eat, he says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. He's saying, 
we don't know what's been sold, what's been offered to idols. He said, but don't ask questions about it, just eat it. He's trying to give them advice here. And so this was the situation. Here is what they were dealing with. But we're going to focus today on a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, just a couple chapters before 10. And here is the crux. Here is, here is the, the main idea that Paul is trying to convey. But I believe through this idea, through this concept, we learn what it means to be a servant of Jesus, to be his bondservant, to be his slave, and how it relates to us towards one another. There's many lessons here that we're going to learn together. The first one is this, is that our conduct as Christians cannot be evaluated solely on knowledge. I shared some of these things with our board just the other month, and I wanted to flesh this out a little more, but share it with you as our church family. Our conduct as Christians cannot be evaluated solely upon our knowledge. You know, we as a body of believers believe that in sola scriptura, that the the Bible and the Bible alone is a rule of faith and practice and knowledge of what life is about, our history, our present, our future, all are encompassed in the message of the Word of God, inspired by God, given to us for all things. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for what? It says for doctrine, that means a system of beliefs for reproof and correction, instructions in righteousness, that the man or a woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the end all. It is the, the, the means by which God conveys his will for our lives. It is a living word. It is not stagnant. It is not static. It is living. And it is sharp. And it moves, it moves our heart. It transforms our lives because it is the word of God. When God's word moves forward, it does not return void. It is powerful. But there's a problem because Paul says that knowledge alone can be a problem. (laughs) Just biblical knowledge can be a problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're talking about the meat and the idols and this dilemma they were going through. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, looking at verse 4 through 6. Paul says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. That there is no other God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, meaning the false ones and those who consider themselves gods, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. We have our being, our existence, our sustenance through Jesus. Amen? And Paul's reminding us of that. There's no other God. And so whatever is being offered to these idols is meaningless. They're being offered to stone and wood, these meaningless objects. And so he says, we all know that this is nothing. There's no power in them. There's only power in one true God. And then we read, back in verse 1 and 2, to gain context, he says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we have knowledge Knowledge about what he was just saying. Knowledge about idols being nothing. That puts it in context. We all have knowledge. But notice what it says. Knowledge, if taken by itself, does what? It puffs up. Paul's kind of using modern language. Knowledge alone gives us a big head. It makes us conceited. It makes us feel like we're better than somebody else. We know something more than somebody. Knowledge puffs up. It gives us a big head. Knowledge alone. But he says, love does what? Love edifies. 
Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowledge alone puffs up, but love builds up is the message that Paul's conveying. How many of you heard have, have, have you how many of you have heard of the name Vanderbilt? Here in America, it is a, a family who uh, throughout our recent history in the past couple hundred years were a powerful family in America. Um, and if you were in the 80s and you were a female, you probably had some Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. It's that family. You wore those with your jellies. You know, I'm not sure. You probably had some of those. They're still selling today. But I don't think they made them for guys. I don't know. But this family goes back to the 1800s and, and Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the, the railroad tycoon, who became probably the, one of the, wealth, we, the wealthiest people ever to be here in America. By the time he died, he was worth about 150, what today we would consider $150 billion. Passes it to his, his son, who doubles that amount of worth. Then it passes it down to his children. And by the time it gets to a man named Alfred Vanderbilt, the great-grandson of the first one that I mentioned, Cornelius, the empire was still big, and he was one of the the biggest recipients of the inheritance. Well, Alfred was married. He had children. He was into buying real estate, furthering the family fortune. He was also into buying horses and training them. And so it was for the latter that Vanderbilt set off for New York aboard the Lusitania in May of 1915. And he was planning on attending a meeting of the International Horse Breeders Association. He was there for something he enjoyed, he was passionate about. And it was in Britain, so he's crossing the Atlantic in the Lusitania. Well, this was during World War I, or the, the beginnings of it. And the people on the ship, it was a large ship, thought, well, this isn't a warship, there's no danger. But they were mistaken, because German U-boats were everywhere. And they spot this ship, and they considered it an enemy craft, or at least one associated with their enemy. And so they torpedoed the Lusitania. And you've probably heard this story. And almost within seconds and minutes, the the whole ship starts going down. Now Alfred, being the wealthy man that he was, had first what we would call first-class tickets on the ship, which meant you were one of the only ones who had a life jacket. You were one of the only ones who had a place in the lifeboat looking at the Titanic as we know what happened there. For those who were first class or in the upper class, they got the first to be in the lifeboat. That was a perk of being in this class of occupants on the ship. He had the right. He had the ability. And so the question is, what would Alfred do as the ship is going down quickly? What would you do? What would we do when our lives are on the line and we're looking around and other people have their lives on the line as well. Knowledge alone can be a dangerous thing. Knowledge can puff up. It can cause pride and arrogance. We can have exaggerated opinions of our own idea, intellectually and even biblically. We can say, I have all the truth. I know what the Bible says. Therefore, I have a deeper knowledge and experience with God because I know information. But notice what Paul says, knowledge alone even this knowledge that there's only one God that, that Paul's saying that we have as Christians. There's only one God. Idols are nothing. That knowledge, too, cannot just be beneficial. He says that alone could tear down. Why? Because knowledge alone without the right application leaves out 
the, of the equation, that second element. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We can have all the knowledge in the world. We can know all things. But unless we trust the Lord, unless we are surrendered to Him, unless we have given Him our life and trust Him completely, becoming His doulos, His slave, obedient, no matter what the cost, no matter what He asks, our hearts will never be in the right place. We will always be bent on ourselves. There's a more important factor Paul says. What's he say? He says, knowledge puffs up. But what does love do? Love builds up. It edifies. That word there for love is agape. It's that selfless, sacrificial love that God has for us. Sacrificial love builds up. Many times we can be very wide in our knowledge, especially in this corpus of believers. We, we trust in the Word of God. We, we champion the Word of God. And we praise God for that. We shouldn't apologize for that. But we must be careful that in so believing and knowing, we forget about the doing. Many times we have a biblical IQ that is through the roof. But sometimes in the same, in the same token, we have an emotional IQ that is about that big. Our, you see, believing and following God is both in spirit and truth. That's how we worship God, with our heads and with our hearts. Sometimes we know him with our head, but we don't know what it means to follow him with our hearts and how that works in relationship to other people. This kind of love that Paul's talking about is not puffed up, doesn't tear down. It looks for the interest of others. We're to teach the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. We can speak with the tongue of angels, the language of heaven. But if there's no love, we're just making noise. And though we have the gift of prophecy, hold on, and they're saying all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains, but have not love, he says, I am what? I am nothing. We can have all the right information, all the right beliefs, all the right knowledge, but if you don't have love, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. It's useless. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. God is looking for a people that just don't have, that don't have a big head, but have a big heart, because the heart is surrendered to Jesus. Where this love exists, this total love for God, we will see it for others. And friends, when we have the mind of Christ, love always has the final word. When you and I have the mind of Jesus, when we're surrendered to him, love always has the final word. Paul continues in verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. In other words, you have knowledge as one God. An idol is nothing. Food offered to idols doesn't affect it, doesn't contaminate it. It's just food. But he says, there are not everyone who has that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, in other words, those who believe that the idol might still have some kind of power or be something, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. 
And their conscience being weak is what? Is defiled. Their conscience is defiled. You see, some new believers found it hard who came out of this idol worship to throw away former feelings, even though they believed there was one God. They still have these feelings and this emotional tide of this, this stuff they're coming out of. Uneasiness. And they just couldn't eat this food knowing that it may have been offered an idol, this old way of life that they've tried to cut themselves away from through following Jesus. And they couldn't eat it with a clear conscience. So a weak conscience is equivalent to not being fully convinced here. Those who couldn't eat this food, this meat offered to idols, not knowing if it was or wasn't with a clear conscience. So what's this mean for us? How does it fit with us? One example is this. You know, as Adventists, I rarely meet an Adventist who doesn't love the Olive Garden. Come on. You love the Olive Garden, most of you. I see some people that are Italian are saying, that's not real Italian food. No, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a frozen dinner. I get it. But, but for most of us, we're like, hey, let's go to the Olive Garden. We're like, yeah. And then we're like, all right. And then we end up going. We love it, right? We're like, man, we, we have an OG coma afterwards because we've stuffed ourselves with the breadsticks and the salad and the soup. Couldn't even eat our own plate of food. Well, okay. Now I'm just rambling. I'm hungry for the Olive Garden now. But I, I've had a friend who, who told me, he says, Brian, he says, I can't go to the Olive Garden. And I was like, really, why? Are you Adventist? He's like, yeah, I can't go. Out. What? What's, what's, what's the deal? <laughs> he goes, he said, Brian, he says, listen, he said, I used to be an alcoholic. He says, and I can't go to any restaurant where they serve alcohol. He says, I, I've broken free. God's given me victory there. He says, but I know I can't be in that restaurant or any other one where I'm around the stuff because it's too, tem- it's too tempting. I can't go there with a clear conscience. And I was like, ah. I get it. So, so for me, it's okay to go to the Olive Garden, but for my friend, it was not. He couldn't do that with a clear conscience. So what is happening here, Paul is saying, what might be permissible for one person could be spiritually damaging for somebody else. Remember that. This is important as we deal with each other as Christians, as the body of Christ, as we understand each other and learn about each other and grow together as the body of Christ. There are things that in and of themselves are not dangerous or wrong, but they might hit us at a weak point in our life. But Peter Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Christian, calls our shadows. Maybe it's a point of brokenness. Maybe it's a point of sin or weakness in our lives. Maybe it's hereditary. Maybe it's cultivated. I don't know. But there are areas of our life where we are weak, and there are things that hit us at that point that might not hit somebody else next to us. And if we have a weakness in that area of our life, and we don't have a clear conscience, the Bible says it's actually wrong to participate in them. How's that? Isn't the Bible clear about what is good and what isn't? The Ten Commandments? It's black and white? Not always. Well, don't throw me out, but listen up, if you would. Just be patient. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. As Paul is dealing with this issue about those who can't eat with a clear conscience, He's discouraging them from doing so. He says, if you can't eat it with a clear conscience, even though I said an idol is nothing, he says, don't do it. Why? He says, because whatever is not from faith is what? Is sin. If we're not doing something with a clear conscience, if we're uneasy about it, if the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we're saying, no, 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 I got to do this, it's not, it's okay. But he's saying, no, no, it's not okay for you. And we keep doing it and we can move forward. The Bible says that's actually sin because we're not obeying or heeding the Holy Spirit's leading and his voice in our life. 
It's not always about what we do, but sometimes it's about the heart behind why and how we're doing it. I remember growing up, growing up Adventist, we all have our stories. Uh, I remember in Pennsylvania, we didn't have beaches. So what we had was creeks, or in Pennsylvania, we called them cricks. Depends where you're at in Pennsylvania or what family you're part of. My family called them cricks. And so these were like streams that were a little wider than a tiny stream, but sometimes about yay deep. So we were allowed to go on nature walks on Sabbath, and, and we were able, when it was hot in the summer, we would go and, and walk in the creeks, right? Remember our parents would say, but guys, you remember, you, you can't go in too deep. You know, you remember that conversation? <laughs> so we got this whole mindset, well, below the shin, not a sin. <laughs> but unfortunately, as we, as we started walking, the creek's always got kind of deep. Well, one thing leads to another, and now we're wading up to here. You just couldn't wave your arms, you just had to walk. You weren't swimming. So you're, you're in the creek, you're, you're walking around. But, you know, when I came to Florida, I realized it's a whole different world because I, I moved to a place where the beach was right there, and that was where nature was in Port Charlotte. That was the place where we went to hang out and enjoy God's creation. That was the equivalent of me going on a nature walk. And at first I was like, oh, this, doesn't, this feels weird. And so I walked out to the water, tried to keep below the shin, you know. It's the golf, so there's no waves. You're, you're okay there. But then after a while I realized... You know, <laughs> this is God's creation. Then I went in a little bit above my shins. <laughs> but notice, whatever we do, and by the way, that's one of those areas where we should never judge each other and who's doing what. But it's one of those things where you need to be convinced and convicted, how the Holy Spirit's leading you for this very reason, that we don't judge one another on petty and trivial things. This is trivial stuff. God looks at the heart. We simply look at the surface stuff and the trivial things. It's called legalism. Permissible behavior for one person may be spiritually damaging for others. We must remember that. That each of us have a different experience, different weaknesses, different brokenness. We need to live, live and love with each other accordingly and understand each other. And be gracious, understanding, and seek, to, and seek to move forward together as one mind, one body. But also, thirdly, no Christian has the right to practice anything that damages the faith of another. And here's where it moves beyond us to somebody else. So it's not just about being evaluated in our knowledge as opposed to knowledge and love. It's not just about what's damaging to us, but now we're talking about a new sphere. The sphere moves outside of our little circle, and now the sphere encompasses the person next to us. And here is where this concept becomes very difficult. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. It says, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. He says, you have liberty, you understand this, you have knowledge. He said, and you can do it with a clear conscience. But beware that this liberty, this freedom you have in Jesus, this knowledge of God, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? What's Paul saying here? 
what he's saying is we do not have the right to do anything that may become a stumbling block to those who are weak. A stumbling block is something we leave carelessly in the way of somebody else, whether it be guys, our shoes at the house. It could be a different thing, not just something to stumble over, but something that we carelessly do, not considering the thoughts and feelings of somebody else. And maybe in your house it's putting the toilet paper on the wrong direction and it irritates the rest of your family. Or not folding the towels a certain way, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's something we unknowingly do, but it affects other people. A a spiritual stumbling block is anything that injures another person spiritually. And so here's the chain of events. A stronger believer or a more mature believer performs a questionable activity for another who don't have a clear conscience. The more immature believer who observes and does not have a clear conscience then sees the more mature brother or sister doing it, and so they say, well, maybe it's okay. Then the weaker brother or the more immature brother participates, and their conscience is weakened because they did it without a clear conscience. And they slowly drift back into the old way of life. There's four participants in these issues. I'm going to move forward uh, more quickly here. And think about this. This is important. First of all, there is what we call a mature participant, as Paul is describing. These individuals have a clear conscience, but do not condemn those who don't on a particular item or an area like we're describing here. A trivial thing or a thing that we have clarity or, or maybe some people might not. So the, a mature participant has a clear conscience about doing it, but they don't condemn other people who don't have the clear conscience. Then there is the mature non-participant. They don't have a clear conscience. They might be the more immature brother or sister, but they don't condemn those who do have a clear conscience. They're not going to judge those who are doing it because they might be in a different place than they're at. I can't do this with a clear conscience, but I'm not going to judge my brother who's doing it because that's not what the church of God, of Jesus, is about. But then there's the immature participant, and here's where we get into danger. They do whatever they please, and they justify it. They just do it, clear conscience or not, doesn't matter. They don't care about anybody else. They just do it because it feels right. They like to do it. They don't care. But I think the most dangerous is the last one, and here's where we struggle. It's the immature non-participant. The immature non-participant is the one who says, I don't do it because I don't think it's right. Therefore, no one else should I don't do it, and I will judge you for doing it as well. That's the immature, non, that's the, the immature participant, the non-participant. And that's where divisions and tensions arise in the body of Christ. I don't, therefore you shouldn't either. And if you do, you're much less of a Christian than I am. So what's a stumbling block? something we carelessly do, not thinking about the good of somebody else, spiritually. You know, many abuse this biblical term. They say, I don't like what you're doing, therefore the Bible says you shouldn't do it because it offends me. You're causing me to stumble. I will guarantee you if somebody comes to you with that line, you're not causing them to stumble. (laughs) I don't like that tie you're wearing. I don't like you going to this place or doing this because it offends me. That's usually not the weaker brother who who is being affected by it. It's usually the last one who says, I don't do it, and you shouldn't either. And you have no business doing it at all. And if you do, well, then you have no business being a member of our church. Mercy. We must consider the person that is not strong 
could be using a text to control their people. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. Whenever Jesus was, was ministering to people, they say, Jesus, you're offending us by your words and what you're doing. There were times where Jesus had to say, you know what? I know you're saying it offends you, but my mission here is clear, and I cannot bow to your advice or your wishes because your hearts are not in the right place. He knew they were trying to gain control, and Christ's mission was clear. It would not be thwarted. It's a good question for us to ask, is to ask the person telling us that we're being a stumbling block, say, please help me understand how this is causing you spiritual harm. Have an honest conversation. And if it's just petty, if it's just something to control or to manipulate, say, you know what, we might not agree, but we're going to move forward in Christian love. They might not agree with that, but you move forward in Christian love. You know, many times we fall into this situation, we become the proper police. We start going to Walmart and meeting a church member, we start looking in their cart, seeing what they got. You know what I'm talking about. How you doing? Good to see you. Why do they need like 10 boxes of little Debbies? Whatever you're looking for in there. We start, we start to please and judge other people. Or maybe we become the social media police. We go in there and look what other people are doing and we start to judge and to comment or to talk about them. We must be cautious about how, how we treat one another. And a final point here is that we never give in to this mindset for the sake of reaching the lost. Just as Jesus didn't, they said, Jesus, you're, you're eating with sinners. Jesus didn't care. He says, I'm not hearing that. He kept eating with sinners, hanging out with sinners, dealing with sinners, loving sinners. He didn't stop just because the Pharisees were offended. He said, I can't stop. This is why I came. Never give, this, give in to this mindset for the sake of reaching the lost. HMS Richards was approached by a, a lady after one of his sermons one time, and, and she goes, Pastor Richards, she goes, I don't like the way you witness to people. And in his day, he was kind of outside the box with some of the things he was doing. He was a trailblazer of sorts. And he goes, oh, really? He says, well, well please share with me how you witness to people. Help me understand. And, and she goes, well, I, I really don't witness to people. He goes, oh, he goes, well, I like the way that I witness to people better than the way that you don't witness to people. <laughs> that, that was hard. <laughs> but sometimes we need to hear the truth in love. Whatever we do as Christians, we must also make sure that we are not hurting somebody else. And here we're, we're wrapping it up. Verses 11, 12, and 13. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. Just because you have knowledge, should we place a stumbling block for a weaker brother who we love to perish, for whom Christ died, putting the weight heavy on the value of a soul. But when you thus sin against the brethren, calls it sin, by the way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, talking about the food offered to idols, he says, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He says, I'll never go to the meat market, buy and eat stuff that could have been offered to an idol just because it might affect my brother or sister in Christ and might hurt them spiritually. 
And this is the hard stuff. Because Paul had every right to eat what was in the market. He knew it was nothing. But he was saying, I will give up anything in my life for the sake of my fellow brother or sister in Christ. Paul's example was this. We must be ready to to say never again to anything in our life for the sake of our brothers and sisters. That's a hard saying. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Food and drink is not important, he says, but righteousness and peace and joy with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. Build up, not tear down. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. Put fill in the blank, whatever that might be. And that's hard. Because, especially in this country, we value liberty and freedom and our choice to do what we want to do, the pursuit of happiness. But the Bible is saying if that pursuit of happiness and the freedom we have affects our brother and sister in a negative way, then we must be ready to say never again. Did I not tell you in the beginning that the way of Jesus is hard, that it's impossible? Becoming a slave of Jesus, submitting our will fully to him means not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want, Father, but what you have called me to do. That is where pride, that is where our personal preferences come into play, and it is a battle within. And it is only by the power of Jesus that he can accomplish anything. Because later in Romans chapter 14, it says, For it is God who works in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is only God in our life, fully surrendered to him daily, minute by minute, that he is able to accomplish anything like this in our life. Is saying, Lord, I'm becoming your doulos, your slave. And praise God, we have a loving master, a benevolent master, a gracious master who provides for all of our needs. And he doesn't, doesn't call us his slaves, but he calls us his sons and daughters. He's adopted us. He says, Jesus, I no longer call you servants or slaves, but I call you friends. Not just friends, but brothers and sisters. And not just brothers and sisters, but sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted from slavery into life eternal in the family of God. Final thoughts. How do we know if we're being a stumbling block? Ask yourself a few questions. Is it forbidden by Scripture, number one? Does it promote edification? Does it build up or tear down? Do you have an uneasy conscience about it? And finally, just ask yourself, could this be causing somebody else to stumble? And by the way, have the right attitude. Don't whine, don't be a martyr, saying, oh, I gave all this up and I wish I didn't have to. It's a terrible thing. I wish I were doing this or that. No, forget it. Don't talk about it. Move forward in Christ, in love with our brothers and sisters, and do it in love. Alfred Vanderbilt was there on the deck of that ship, women and children screaming, looking for a place to find refuge. Lifeboats were limited. And so Alfred sees a woman running with her child, frantic, crying, and immediately he grabs her and he takes his life jacket that belonged to him as a first-class passenger. He gives it to this lady. And he says, go in the lifeboat. He escorts her over to the lifeboat, puts her in. And for the next several minutes, Alfred Vanderbilt 
Tig says, let's get the kiddies. And so he, along with some others, grabbed all the kids they could find, put them into the lifeboats, women and children, until finally, as the boat was sinking so quickly, he was lost. A wave came, swept them off, never to be seen again. He died, giving his life, and his, his, not just his life jacket, giving his life for the sake of others he didn't even know. We're all part of the body of Christ. In this building that we're each a part, Christ is the chief cornerstone. The question we ask today, are we building blocks or are we being stumbling blocks? Are we building up the body or are we tearing it down by our attitudes, our words, our dealings with each other? To injure those who are in the body. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. That means the way of death to self, the way of surrender. And the way of the cross is a way, is a life marked by continual surrender to God and selfless sacrificial love to others, giving up our rights, becoming not just slaves of Jesus, but also slaves of each other, saying, I will put your needs, your good above mine. Because that's the mind of Jesus. And we have the mind of Christ. Love always has the final word. Amen. Church, let's all stand together as we sing our last song. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Good.
physical lives for somebody else. Maybe some of us will. But every day we have, we have the opportunity to lay down our lives, to take up our cross for Jesus. But that also means as we give up our rights, our good for the good of somebody else, we're dying to self. That can only happen as Christ is made alive and real in us. And so our prayer today is that Christ would be all and that we would be nothing. When others see us, they see Jesus. And he's willing and able to do that in our lives if we just ask. So let's ask together today. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are broken. We're full of all sorts of stuff. Pride, arrogance. We think we know a lot, but most of the time we're just fooling ourselves because we know that only by trusting and knowledge and knowing you is there anything real and concrete, anything meaningful. But Lord, in the knowing, we pray that we would also be loving, not just towards you with all of our heart, but to other people as a result. We pray, Lord, that we would die daily to you, surrendering our lives, our wills, our everything. But also, because of that, because of the mind of Jesus being put in us, that we would also surrender our good to the good of others. Because that's what you've called us to do. But we know it's impossible, but through you all things are possible. And help us to live for you, to live for each other, to live for our community, for those who don't know you. That's why we are here. And we thank you for what you're going to do. And we surrender our lives to you, our wills, our hearts, our everything. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. God bless you. Have a blessed week. As a reminder, we'll have some elders who are up here in the front. If you need special prayer, feel free to come forward here at the end of the service, and they'll be happy to pray with you personally. God bless you. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you next weekend.